Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to an episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. Do you follow the pack or challenge the status quo? Join Ted as he explores how to succeed by going against conventional wisdom. You'll hear leaders in technology and security tell stories about how they achieve their success by doing things differently. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Tech Done Different. I'm your host, Ted Harrington, and with me is my co-host, Ben Schmerler, and our very special guest, Matt Brown. Matt is a senior security analyst with us at ISE. So uh, we got a whole ISE crew here today. We're going to talk about hacking. We're going to talk about security research. And Ben, I don't, I don't know about you, but I'm excited about this because we ha- you're a security guy. I'm a security guy. We create this show, and we don't actually have that many guests who are security people. So to have not just a security person, but someone who lives right at the front lines of ethical hacking, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. How about you? Oh, totally. And Matt's the best guy to talk to. He does so much cool stuff. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> to be determined. We have 25 minutes to determine this. So we'll see at the end. <laughs> so Matt, let's, uh, let's talk about you for a minute. One of the reasons that Ben and I wanted to have you on the show was you're just, you're just doing such cool research right now. I can't even keep up with all the cool things you're doing. So for the purpose of our audience, why don't you just briefly introduce some of the research that you're doing and then Ben and I will dig in and ask you some questions about it. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, well, like you said, getting to work here at ISC is drinking through a fire hose sometimes, but gotten the great opportunity to take a look at a number of different Bluetooth devices that do a bunch of different cool things. So probably uh, all have uh, interacted with Bluetooth on your phone. You've bought some smart thing, some light bulb outlet, and you connect it up to your phone and it can do all sorts of cool things. Well, I've had the opportunity to take a look at actually how that communication works between uh, your phone and some smart device, whether it's a, yeah, just a light bulb, something fun or something more serious, like a medical device. We've taken a look at a number of medical devices and found a number of concerning things in how they do security. What are the implications of this? So, I mean, obviously we all use Bluetooth for our day-to-day to listen to, you know, music on our headphones or something like this or connect to our cars, but what are like the implications of some of the research you're doing? Yeah. So within the sphere of Bluetooth, there's a technology called Bluetooth low energy. You may have heard of it. And this is just the latest and greatest of Bluetooth. Everything in the Bluetooth world is going to use Bluetooth low energy coming up if it's not using it already. Uh, your your AirPods, all that stuff, uh, your, your Apple Watch is using Bluetooth low energy. So the impact of this is that Bluetooth low energy is the communication mechanism. It's how any sensitive data that might appear on your phone uh, or it might get transferred to your watch or... Yeah, like I said, some piece of medical device. So all of this data is going through the air Uh, right now. Around us, there is data flying around over Bluetooth Low Energy. And is it secure? Is it not secure? Could there be somebody, you know, behind this wall in my apartment complex listening in on that Bluetooth data? That's what we've dug into in our research. And uh, it's very interesting, some of the things we've found. So 
if you find this type of issue that you're researching in one type of product, and we're talking about the communication protocol right now, right? If you find an issue in one product leveraging that protocol, does that mean that that same issue exists in another solution or is it the way that the protocol is being implemented? Yeah, this is a thing that absolutely comes down to if the company that developed that device did the hard work of doing just good old fashioned application security, right? When it comes down to it in Bluetooth, Bluetooth Low Energy, they decided to make security optional. It is there. The security mechanisms exist for you to have your data all safe and encrypted when it's communicated from your phone to your other smart device. They decided that requiring that security would maybe encumber users a little bit too much. So they decided to make it up to the device manufacturer whether they wanted to use the native built-in Bluetooth Low Energy security or not. Or and and. If they don't, then they have the choice of uh, either doing nothing or to secure that data or to try to implement and roll their own security solution into their technology. So you will find some devices. We've looked at a number of devices. And ironically enough, one of the devices that one of our fellow engineers has found is a Bluetooth energy toilet seat. And out of all the devices we've looked at so far, it has actually implemented its security better than some of the medical devices we've looked at. It all comes down to if the manufacturers decided that this was something they were going to, to implement when your phone connects up to that device. Uh, Matt, uh, I'm sure our audience is very shocked to hear that a lot of manufacturers focus on putting a product out there instead of securing this. I, I can't believe that something like this would happen. No, never, never, ever, ever. No. And, and some of the hilarious responses I've received when reporting these type of vulnerabilities have been, oh, well, we, we thought about doing that when we developed this product, but we thought it would be too much of a hit on our user experience to have them click a button on their mobile device that says, yes, I want to pair from the operating system, from the mobile operating system's perspective. Uh, they, they thought that that would just ruin the user experience when setting up the device. And that was the whole reason why they didn't implement the native Bluetooth Low Energy security protocols. So let me ask you about that, because you're bringing up, I think, a real practical challenge that we face every day in the business of ethical hacking, which is that security can at times maybe run, I don't want to say in conflict, but let's just use that phrase, can maybe run in conflict with the business priorities. So the business, as you just described it, explained why they made a choice to deprioritize security. From your perspective, as someone who is a security professional who looks at things the way that attackers look at things, how would you advise a company to address that issue? I mean, the, the most blunt way is like, just do it the more secure way. But maybe they already thought that and they decided not to do that. So what? how do we advise an organization who's thinking along the lines of what you're hearing? Oh, man, that's just such a fun topic. If I could, if I could tell my younger professional self uh, a few things, right, it would be to not be that blunt person, right, that just, just goes to the client, goes to the engineer and says, hey, you're just doing this wrong. You just need to do just why, why aren't you like doing security the right way, right? And obviously that's not the way. We as security professionals want to interact with our stakeholders, but it can be tempting at times, right? So I think when you're dealing with 
a an application, a device, and trying to secure it. It all comes down to its context, right? In security, we sometimes use the word threat model, right? We 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 always walk around and ask, "What's your threat model?" Well, really simply, a threat model it's the types of attacks that you think might occur against your device, against your application, against your systems, and what you know, you might even get into the detail of what types of, you know, attackers, right? Is it a really unskilled individual that's just doing some opportunistic attack? Or are they like a nation state on the other side of that spectrum? Are they a nation state actor with tons of resources at their disposal? And you kind of walk through those scenarios. So for some devices, if they are communicating data that's not that sensitive, that you just don't consider to be sensitive, and that they believe their customers aren't going to consider sensitive, then maybe it's okay to opt out of some of these security protocols that may, like you said, it's not always a guarantee, but it may induce a reduction in user experience. But I I always like to challenge that that common thread, that common idea. And I remember back in my uh, grad school days, they would like, they draw this triangle, right? And they're like, well, usability, there's like usability and there's security. And I forget what the other quadrant was, but they pull against each other, right? And it's like, you can't, you can't have both of them. And that is sometimes the case. There are sometimes choices when you're developing a technology and developing a system that are going to come down to that kind of binary choice. Like, oh, do I want more usability or do I want more security? Oftentimes, you can make improvements to the system security with minor or no effects on the user. So I, I, I don't like it when that, that principle is just thrown around like it's universally true. Sometimes we do encounter those issues as, as engineers and I, as a security professional, maybe learned from my mistakes of my past of being too blunt. I, I, I try to understand where the engineers and the product designers are coming from, but oftentimes you can have that security. You can, you can really have it all. You can have the security and you can have a, a, a usable product. It's not impossible. The bottom line reality, of course, is that if a system is down or, or, or compromised because of a security incident, there is no usability. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how theoretical your usability should be if you lower your security. Uh, I, I have a, a question for you, Matt. You know, we're talking about companies building products and things like that, but a lot of our audience, you know, people who are listening to this, they're focusing on this from the consumer level. They're they're buying the headphones, they're connecting their cars, doing all this other stuff. So, like, how should they think about this? You know, they're just going out and they're doing their day-to-day -day lives. They're they're getting things and they're trusting these manufacturers. What can an average person do to sort of be mindful of these concerns? Oh wow, yeah, that's such a good question. And in one, from one, my my initial answer is going to be like more of the pessimistic one. It's it's like that's it's hard, right? One of the people in the security industry I really looked up to. His name is Bruce Schneier. He gave a great talk at RSA where he kind of used some economic principles to talk about how do you determine, like how do you as a consumer of security determine if that thing you're purchasing, that thing you're wanting to invest in is secure or not secure, and how with the limited information that the consumer of that technology has, it makes it really hard for them to make that determination, right? I because let's talk about these Bluetooth low energy devices as an example of that. So in Bluetooth low energy, the that security mechanism that I mentioned, that is called pairing. 
So we've all heard of the term pairing before, but actually its common use kind of dilutes the security of what that provides. Oftentimes I have found devices that in their setup procedures use the term pairing to describe the association of their phone with some device. But under the hood, it is not actually doing pairing as defined by the Bluetooth specification. So even if a user, so this is the pessimistic side of this answer, even if the user was to go and look in a manual and they're like, oh, well, it's pairing, my phone is pairing with the device. Bluetooth low energy pairing is where we get all this security from. So this must be a secure device, right? Well, no, many of these devices claim that they're performing pairing when they're actually not. So this is where to turn to a more uh, optimistic answer, I think going with a brand that you trust and a company that has a track record of doing security well is going to be a better bet. In the IoT world in particular, there are a lot of products from companies that you've never heard of that you can go on Amazon and if you want to get a a Bluetooth speaker, a Bluetooth-enabled light bulb, like I've got here over on my workbench, uh, a smart plug. You can find one for pretty cheap for a, from a company that you've never heard of. And oftentimes the way those companies operate is they spin up manufacturing and development for the product. They produce a whole lot of that product and and then they shut down that factory and allocate it to, to producing some other product. And then they ship that product over overseas to where it is marketed by a, a local company. But it is actually produced and all of the engineering work is overseas. And any type of, you know, secu ongoing security work is completely out of the question because they've all those engineers have moved on to their next project. If we look at that model and those, the devices that are produced by those companies, that is where we see a lot of just complete failure to care about security. They're not performing security assessments. Whereas your bigger companies, I'm, I'm not given, I'm not given a pitch here, but if you were to, you know, have a choice between, you know, some no-name Bluetooth, you know, headset solution or Apple. I'd go. I'd go with Apple, right? They've got a security budget. They have a. They have a proven track record of investing in security. Now we can have a whole other discussion about whether you want to buy an Apple product or not. But they do invest. They do invest in security. Whereas these kind of pop up companies that create a product and then go away and then just put it on on Amazon that you can buy. You're not going to get security from those. It's kind of like the guy on the street says, you want to watch? And then he opens up his jacket and there's this whole thing of watches in there. Yeah. Yeah. And then next week you come by because it doesn't work and he's gone. Right. It's the right. Now he's selling knives. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's like the carnival. It's like the carnival model. You like you con people and then you like leave town before like, you know, as you know, before people catch on to the scam. Right. You know, not, now there's nothing's black and white. Right. There's some some companies they might care about it a little bit. But in the IoT world, you, you do unfortunately see a lot of that. That makes a lot of sense. So, Matt, you're obviously very passionate and very skilled at this. What is the goal for you in doing this? What change do you hope results after you've done this research, you've published it, you go talk about it at various conferences, which 
we can get into in a little bit, but you know, you, you put all that effort into something, you put all that love and passion out into a profession. What change do you hope is going to result? Yeah, ju- just a, an awareness from the public of these vulnerabilities, right? And that's that's a hard thing to do nowadays, trying to have consumers be the one that's going to to make this change. But I think, I mean, we do like like every day here in the news about, oh, this company was breached. Oh, this security, you know, uh, this hack happened, right? But almost that can become, that can become deafening over time. You're just like, oh yeah, well, everybody gets hacked, right? But I think for specifically my my research in the area of Bluetooth low energy, my real hope is for the people that design the Bluetooth protocol. So I mentioned at the beginning that the the specification, it, it leaves that security feature as optional, right? In, in the Bluetooth low energy protocol, all the security is optional. My hope is that we would raise awareness so that the people making those decisions when they're deciding on these new wireless protocols or whatever other security protocol it is, that they would start to take security a lot more seriously. You've and, and the Bluetooth Bluetooth protocol is, is a really interesting story in that regards. It starts with a lot of, you know, <laughs> terrible decisions and then some better decisions over time. But my hope is that Sounds like college. They would, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. better decisions. They tried to, yeah. I mean, we can get into it, but it's just, oh man, it's just a hilarious story. But, but some of the newer protocols that they're coming out with, Bluetooth Mesh, for example, is is a is an augmentation of Bluetooth Low Energy that's trying to do smart home automation stuff. They require security in that in that version of the protocol. So who knows? Maybe moving forward, we will start to see more stringent requirements coming out of the protocols themselves with that understanding that many device manufacturers are going to implement the bare minimum of those said protocols. So so an organization that designs these protocols like Wi-Fi, like Bluetooth, all these other smart home protocols, that they would have some security by design built into their stuff. Matt, I want to ask you a question. You know, Ted has in his background his famous think like a hacker stuff. And we always talk about that here. And I can't think of too many people in on the planet that I, when we talk about think like a hacker, I feel like you're wired to be a hacker, that you don't not think like a hacker. Maybe you need to calm down a little bit with the hacking stuff. And I guess I want to pivot this into something I learned about you today. You know, most of us, when we go into a -a Build-A-Bear, we think of the little bears and the clothes that we're going to put on them. Uh, Tell me about what you were thinking about when you were in Build-A-Bear recently. Oh, man. All right. Going to bring this up. What a good question. Wow. So recently, for my daughter's birthday, took her into Build-A-Bear. And as part of the process of building your Build-A-Bear, you have the option to put this device. And this is just, you know, terrible to do to the parents specifically. You can put a device in the bear that will uh, play a short audio clip every time uh, it's pressed. And you put it in the paw of the bear. And so when it actuates, it will play whatever the sound is. You can pick a bunch of sounds from your favorite, you know, kid shows, or you can record your own, uh, which is what my daughter chose to do this most recent time. But the really interesting part that I observed and what makes me want to like go and figure out how this works is so you 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 grab from a bag of these of these buttons and on the back were two metal terminals. And then when you want to program the 
uh, you know, the thing that plays the audio, you put it into a receptacle and then you click on, on the screen and you, you know, you select what audio clip you want to record to it and you hit program. And then it programs this little audio device for the Build-A-Bear. So my mind is immediately like, I want to understand the protocol that talks to that little device to program a sound file to it. There's so many potentials there, you know, like I could I could program my own audio, you know, for free, reprogramming the Build-A-Bear thing. But my, yeah, I, I, the reason why I said this would be kind of hard to do is I would have to bring a device into the Build-A-Bear store to like... It's not that big of a deal. To like, yeah, yeah. And, you know, just, just this like old guy, you know, over in the corner with like some electronics uh, in the Build-A-Bear. Nothing sketchy about that. Nothing weird there. Nope. No, not at all. <laughs> Ted, you have to admit, you love talking about things. You're like a hacker. Have you ever thought about that stuff when you walk near a Build-A-Bear? Well, first of all, I don't think I've ever been in a Build-A-Bear. Um, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> but I can conceptualize there are bears and you build them. And now I know about the actuating paw. Okay, so first of all, I was, I, I like, I couldn't be more sucked in than the beginning of what the question was. I'm talking about Build-A-Bear. Like, wow, Ben, did you just bring the, bring the heat? And then, Matt, hearing you, you talk about it, I think it was a really fascinating display of what hackers think like, right? Hackers are curious and they're looking at things and they're like, well, it's supposed to work a certain way, but can it work a different way? And you frame that in a very pleasant way. Like, oh, I could, you know, reprogram my own. I'm like, I can make that thing swear. Like, that's the way I would be thinking about the Yeah, 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 yeah. Like swear <laughs> at the kids. <laughs> so I love that story that you're looking at and you already, you identified like the constraints that you'd have about potentially doing that. But I think that's such a powerful way to think about it, right? Is like, there are things around us all the time that are built in a certain way and there's, they're intended to be used in a certain way. So how do we, how should we think about assumptions that people have when they're building things, right? Cause that's a lot of what you're finding is uh, when you're doing research, you're finding that someone made a bad assumption about a thing. Maybe that's not all of the issues, but that is a common. So how, how should people building things think about their own assumptions? Yeah, probably the biggest assumption that I interact with and then, you know, violate as a hacker is something we in the security world call security through obscurity. So oftentimes someone who is building something has this assumption that if you don't know how that thing works, then you won't be able to use it in a, in a way that's not intended, right? So going back to the Build-A-Bear example, the assumption is that only the Build-A-Bear, you know, the, 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 the computer that programs these devices, only that device knows the protocol for how to program the sound device. But if somebody could be eavesdropping on those communications in this in this case it would be physical eavesdropping i would have to have a specialized device connected right up to the probes of this receptacle but but the assumption would that that they that they would have when designing that is nobody's going to be listening in on these communications right it's too hard nobody would think to do that right it's all those assumptions that build up in, into this general principle we call security through obscurity it's 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 too obscure nobody knows this protocol except for build a bear right i as a hacker look at that and i think well why not why couldn't i figure that out and so that's something we do a lot called reverse engineering we try to take the engineering process backwards we have a thing and we try to figure out how they 
how they built it, how they designed it. And that's something I do every day in my job. I, I also have a, a background. It helps as an engineer. I've worked as a programmer, as a uh, someone who builds systems as well. And so that kind of helps me get in the head, so to speak, of the engineer when I'm looking at a system. I'm always thinking like, okay, if I were lazy, how would I build this system? And what, what shortcuts would I take if I, if I were building it? And I'm like, eh, I, I just want to get done. I just want to, I just, you know, I just want to go watch TV. How, how do I do this quickly and cut corners? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love that you brought up security through obscurity. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you guys a story that I just told during a keynote I gave the other day. This was a really cool moment actually because I got invited to deliver this keynote and it was this association that my father has been very involved with for big parts of his career. So I invited him to come. And so he and my mom, they both came. My brother came too. It was like a whole Harrington family affair. And so I'm on this stage. This is the first time I ever told this. I've told this story many times, but it was the first time I told it on a stage with my dad in the audience. And I was trying to explain security through obscurity. And I explained it with something that happened when I was in high school. And what happened was, you know, when you're in high school, like, and you want to have some beer, it's kind of hard to get beer. And when you finally get your hands on some beer. Not that you would ever do that. You wouldn't have ever. This is all hypothetical. hypothetical. This is all hypothetical. Yes, yeah, you never done it. <laughs> it's something funny about hackers. We always, we always talk about hypothetical. Yeah, totally. Yeah. If, I, if hypothetically I was supposed to get my hands on some beer and me and my hypothetical buddies, we didn't finish it, but it's like, you know, it's hard to come by when you're 18. So. What are we going to do? We're not going to throw it away. I'm not going to like go put it in the fridge next to like my mom's like lasagna or whatever. So what do I do? Well, I grew up in, in New England, right outside of Boston, and it was winter. So it's like the problem is solved. I'll just dig a hole. I'm going to put this beer in the snow, cover it. You, could, you literally couldn't see it. So I go to bed and I wake up in the morning and I hear my dad, who's like the nicest, calmest, gentlest man in the world, yelling my name from the front lawn. And what had happened was that in the middle of the night, it's New England, like New England weather is very unpredictable. It got really warm in the middle of the night and it melted all the snow. And so here was this <laughs> pile of beer cans just sitting in the middle of my front yard. And my dad is like, I mean, I, I still might be grounded from that experience. But when I think about, besides that story being like very amusing, and it was really funny to tell it on a stage with my dad in the audience and my parents are like, I guess at this point, like it's fine, but <laughs> I think about that story and I, that's such a illustration of security through obscurity, right? Like I'm the only one who knows the secret. I'm the only one who knows where the beer is hidden, but what if a condition changes and all of a sudden the whole assumption, the whole model completely falls apart. And that's exactly what you're talking about, right? I mean, so Ben, <laughs> I want to pivot this to you now because I want to ask you a question. Okay. Oh no. <laughs> one thing that's really interesting about what we've just chatted about is assumptions. And one of the things that you do every day is you're interacting with people who are needing help of people like Matt. And so you're helping them determine like, well, what do you really need? What's the, you know, how should we scope this problem? How do we define it? How do we think about your problem in the proper context? How do you deal with this problem? How does someone before we're even like getting into working on a project, when someone's trying to understand their problem, how do we deal with these assumptions, whether they're stated or implied? You know, it's just to get to the heart of the goals of, of why we're even sitting there. I mean, ultimately, any kind of project you do, and we're talking right now about ethical hacking and assessments and pen testing or whatever, whatever. But you could apply this rule to IT projects or perhaps whatever. You know, maybe you're working on a, you know, there's a people people outside the office working on a deck. You could apply this to anything, which is that fundamentally, 
the project is only a success if we meet the, the goals of the people who are hiring us to do the work. And so the philosophy I always use when I'm doing a call or I'm trying to determine scope is what are we trying to achieve? You know, is it just a compliance thing? Are we just checking off a box? Well, I mean, I think we should do more than that. But if that's the goal, then I need to approach it differently than someone who says, we have to protect this product. Otherwise, it's a national security concern. These are dramatically different ramifications. And based on what we get in these, I call them exploratory calls, you can call them whatever you want. But all we're really trying to, to come up with are metrics of success and failure. And so once I know what those metrics of success or failure, people like, like Matt and my other colleagues here are really, really bright. They can figure out exactly where a product like a Bluetooth low energy thing or a web application or whatever it is, where those ramifications actually matter and what kind of things we should do to test. There's a lot of prescriptive ways people feel about testing or assessments or anything like that. And that's kind of the wrong approach. I mean, really, people should be focusing on goals first. And if we do that, then we're going to have a lot of success. Plus, it sets people like Matt up for success when he's actually doing the work so that he gets the best results possible. I love that. I, I feel like I've learned today. So <laughs> I have one question I want to ask Matt now, which is, Matt, you're a very curious guy. Let's say that you won the Powerball and now you have unlimited money to hack anything that you could possibly hack. Let's, what is your dream hack? Oh, man. Ooh. It's, I ask tough questions. I'm sorry. I love the assumption in this. You're like, Matt, you have unlimited money. So you're continuing to do the same job. And what will you do in that same job? <laughs> Something tells me that if Matt came into a lot of money, he would still be a bit of a hobbyist. I'm going to tell a little personal stuff. When Matt and I were splitting a room at DEF CON, I discovered for the first time that some people bring soldering irons with them to Las Vegas. You know, most of us bring our, our gambling tip books and things like that. But Matt was soldering. And so something tells me that if Matt came into a lot of money, he definitely would still be hacking. Oh, yeah. Okay. I've got my answer to my question. I, I, I think satellites. I think satellites are, are super fascinating, and but obviously are not cheap. We could put it in the budget maybe, right? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if you work on that for me, uh, that, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. We can like FedEx the thing, bring it to cons and stuff. It's totally cool. Just a little little baby satellite. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Matt, you're you're awesome. I feel like this episode should be three hours long. I want to keep talking to you all day. But unfortunately, we do have to come up to the end of our time here together. So as we wrap up, is there anything you want to leave our audience with? Anything we haven't covered or anything you want to summarize? Yeah, I just think that it's a big, wide, wide world out there. Lots of stuff to hack, lots of stuff to secure. I think I think in our talk, we, we kind of talked, you, you maybe heard me bounce between, and this is really common in security, some of that pessimism. And But I, I always like to come back to an op optimistic place. When I look back over technology, just in the last, you know, 15 years, if not, you know, 25, you know, 30 years, we have gotten way better at a lot of stuff. We have made it a lot harder for the bad guys to do certain types of attacks. And so I always like to keep it optimistic and like zoom out and look at things that way. Because if you just read the news, like, oh, there's a hack on this. This got hacked. This That got hacked. You can kind of just look around at the world and be like, are, are we doing anything in the security world? Well, we, we are. We are. That's my That's my take. I love it. Awesome. Well, Matt, thank you so much for participating and teaching us some things. Ben, I'm going to ask you to hang out. I want to pick your brain about a couple of things that Matt said. And Matt, you're the man. Thank you so much. Have a good one. See you, Matt. Bye. Wow, Ben. How about Matt? Huh? What, what, what's your takeaway from that pretty cool conversation we just had about ethical hacking? 
You know, it's interesting. I, I do, I work with Matt a lot. And so unlike, you know, I, I, I try to get to our, know our guests a little bit and have a rapport with them when we have a chat, but I already sort of knew a few things that Matt was about. So my real challenge was what can I come up with to really dig into where Matt's mentality comes from? Because I think a lot of people think about hacking and they think very negative stuff, but they don't think about the education side. You know, Matt is passionate about teaching people, about finding solutions to problems. You know, everything that he was talking about, even when he was talking about some of the negative stuff, I, you know, we asked him, you know, how do average people deal with this? And he basically said, it's, it's scary, but there's inherent risk in everything we do. And I think the message that Matt wants to leave people with is to be responsible, but not be terrified of things because security people do make things better and they make things more secure. Yeah. Yeah. I love the way he ended that. I'd like to end on a positive note too. I mean, that's the thing that's, I don't know, a blessing and curse maybe about our profession is that we have to live every day expecting the ugly things to happen and like thinking the worst case scenarios. And it's sort of, I always think about it like the, the movie, the matrix, right? You unplug from the matrix and now you see the ugliness in the world. And it's like, you can't, you can plug back into the matrix, but like, you still know the ugliness in the world is there. And so we have to live in that every day. And you can see it in a lot of security professionals sometimes where they, they kind of like get caught in that. And it's very easy, especially people who market security services and products. Like there's all this doom and gloom, but things are getting better and things are improving. And it's because of people like Matt who are, I think you 100% hit the nail on the head. Like Matt could have endless money and he would still be doing this same thing because he just loves it. Like our industry relies on people like that, right? Absolutely. I mean, look, we have houses that could catch on fire at any moment. We could walk outside in a storm and lightning could hit us or we could get hit by a car or things like that. doesn't mean we don't do these things. We try and take proper precautions, listen to experts, learn, adapt, change, grow. And I think that's what it's all about. One of the things I really like about working in this industry in general is, and I think this is something that maybe some of the audience might be sympathetic to. I think it's hard to find meaning in work sometimes. Sometimes people wonder when they're writing something or they're doing their job, like, what is the meaning of this? And one of the great things about when when I see a, a report come out that Matt worked on where we actually discover you know, higher critical vulnerabilities, we've made a tangible benefit to the manufacturers, the users who use these devices, all that stuff. There is a benefit to these things and you know you're a part of it. And that's a really great feeling to have. That's a really cool way of framing it, right? Because so much of what we do, like security is, uh, it's hard to see, it's hard to measure. And it's like, oh, you didn't get hacked. Does that mean that it's because you're doing it right or because we're just lucky? But you're right, being able to say that, you know, a, a talented professional invested a certain amount of effort and as a result, you found these things and now you can remediate those things. That's the big thing. Now you can do something about it. It's like anyone who wants to get better at anything, you know, an athlete who wants to get better at their chosen sport, they're watching video of themselves. They're working with coaches because they want to improve their form. And that's really what we get to do for, I'm saying we in the context, like we're kind of talking about what we do at ISE, but really we're saying we in terms of the profession of security gets to do that, right? Definitely, definitely. And it's not perfect. Nothing is perfect. It's about managing risk. You talked about the athlete. The athlete trains every day. A basketball player, for example, could be at the top of their, their game, be the best players in the world. They're going to miss shots. They're going to make mistakes. What they're trying to do is put themselves in a position to win. What they're trying to do is put themselves in a position to protect themselves. If you're trying to be a healthy person, you run, you run, let's say you run all the time so you don't, you know, that you'd stay in shape, but you could still have a heart attack. But the idea is you're going to be less likely to have a heart attack. You're going to put yourself in a position to succeed. 
And, you know, bad things can happen. Absolutely. They're going and bad things are going to happen. The goal is to put yourself in the right position to protect yourself from those things. Yeah, I like the way you frame that, too. I've always had this concern and I hope it never comes to be true. And Matt even touched on it a little bit that there would be someday like breach fatigue, right? People just saying like, eh, everyone gets hacked. Like, what's even the point? Why even invest in it? And I think the way you just framed it around the athlete, right? Like the athletes are going to miss shots. They're going to lose games. They're going to lose heartbreaking games. They're, the ref is going to make the wrong call. They're going to pull a muscle in the, you know, in the game. But that isn't a reason to not train hard every single day and try to improve the craft every single day. Because like, I love the way you said it, you got to put yourself in the position to win. And I've never thought about that's kind of the way we're doing with security, but that's such a good way to say it. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's what I believe in. It's There's only so many things in the world that we can worry about or protect ourselves from or, or whatever. There's nothing that's, in, nobody's invincible. Nobody can do things. But if we put the proper diligence into the things we care about, I'm talking about security now, but you could apply it to really anything. You're going to have a much better outcome. I love it. Ben, I love doing this with you. You're such a fun person to co-host with. So Absolutely. Me too, Ted. We'll do another one soon. So for everyone who's listening, if you want to learn more about our guests, the show itself, or potentially ask to come up here, just go to tedharrington.com backslash podcast, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tech Done Different podcast with Ted Harrington. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.